Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Earlier this year, the Nebraska Public Power District, or NPPD, received federal approval to study potential sites where a small modular nuclear reactor could be located. Wanting to know more about this new technology, what it is, how it works, how it's different from other energy production technologies, we reached out to colleagues at the University of Nebraska, where we found an expert who could help us understand these things. My guest today is Jerry Hudgens. I am currently chair of the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department here at UNL. And I also have served as the interim director of the Nebraska Center for Energy Sciences Research. Small modular nuclear reactors have the potential to reshape how we generate and use energy. They could help us to dramatically reduce our reliance on carbon-based fuels like coal and natural gas, and could also complement technologies that are traditionally thought of as green, like solar and wind. But they also have limits and challenges. My discussion with Jerry covers the gamut, from what nuclear energy is and how modular reactors are different, to technological and political challenges to its adoption. We're going to cover a lot of ground over the next 40 minutes or so. I hope you enjoy this high-energy conversation. My research area is in the energy space, so I work in high-powered electronics whose applications would, say, be associated with in particular, renewable energy systems like wind and solar energy systems, but also advanced transportation, so electrification of transportation systems. So mm-hmm. electric vehicles, you know, it's kind of an obvious activity and so forth. So I, I deal with those kinds of systems in my particular research area, and we have a group of faculty in our department uh, that work in similar areas as well. Yeah, and I think this is our third podcast this year kind of touching on this nexus of issues. It's fascinating how electrification of transportation and uh, changes in the electricity production system, Mm -hmm. how closely related those two issues are. Right. Interesting how we've uh, kind of been converging on these topics. Very good. Yeah. And, and, you know, everybody's interested in in energy. And of course, uh, here there's interest in how energy plays broadly in agribusiness applications Use of water, cleanliness of water, and, and access to water, et cetera, that's a big, big issue. And, and then, uh, of course, we have large wind resource and pretty good solar resource. So how does renewable energy fit in amongst all those things mm-hmm. as well and, and so forth? So a little bit of context in terms of nuclear energy. So if you, if you look at wind and solar energy, and it's, you know, that's the big piece of renewable energy in the U.S. and certainly in, in this part of the country is predominantly wind. And uh, that makes up about 10% of the generating capacity. And then if you advance to all renewables, hydro and solar, and sort of pull all that together, that's roughly 20% of the generating capacity in the U.S. you could call renewable energy uh, sources. About 20% is coal, about 20% nuclear, and about 40% natural gas. So the problem with renewable energy sources like wind and solar is that they're intermittent, right? Mm-hmm. The wind's not always blowing, sun's not always shining, and we don't have a really good way to store energy mm-hmm. to to carry us through periods of, of no wind or, or no uh, light. And so that limits 
how much renewable sources you can put into the electric grid and still have reliability and safety and so forth. And so then you're left with, well, okay, at the current state of technology, we don't have great storage technology for energy systems to rapidly convert to electrical form. So that means you're looking at three major fuels to produce the bulk of electricity so that you have coal, natural gas, and nuclear. So I think that's you know part of what's sparked the renewed interest in nuclear. Folks would like to get away from hydrocarbons, uh, mm-hmm. coal, and, and natural gas. Though natural gas is is a pretty good fuel because it, it burns fairly cleanly, uh, but it does produce some CO two and a few other things. So uh, you know if if CO two is a driver for this in terms of uh, control, then certainly nuclear is a, is a valid option because it does not produce CO two. Most of these plants require water for cooling, mm-hmm. uh, and there are ways you can do sort of closed loop, and there's uh, water through, you know, where you bring water in, help cool the plant, and then uh, send the water back on its merry way, because typically there's are near rivers and so forth. But water has to be controlled in terms of temperature and so forth. So there's some environmental things that have to be done associated with large power plants. So... You know, talking about small modular reactors, uh, the idea was that the way that nuclear technology uh, was done in the industry were these large power plants that were kind of one-off designs and they were extremely expensive. Uh, And so the thinking was 20 years ago, I said, well, could we do something that's more in line with what you think of in terms of manufacturing like cars? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right, so you learn how to build a car, and you and you build a Chevy Impala, and you build a thousands of them, right? Mm-hmm. And you get really good at building them. Uh, the manufacturing is is cheaper because you have bulk production, and so the idea was, well, can we apply that to the nuclear industry? Could we build small reactors and sort of put them through in a manufacturing line and deliver those plants on site? So that has an added advantage if you think about security of the electric grid. When you have multiple generating sources that are interconnected, it's much harder to disrupt that from either terrorist attack kind of thing or natural disaster and so forth. If You may uh, remove part of the generating capacity in some area, but you still have all these other generators tied to the system that can pick up the slack. And so there's there's some robustness and security with having a distribution of generation. And in fact, that's a field of study mm-hmm. in power systems is this distributed generation. So you could think of nuclear and, and renewable sources as being part of that. Yeah, so that's a, a whole lot right there. I, I was actually... Yeah, sorry. So, <laughs> no, no, no. I was trying to get a little context on yeah, this. Yeah, uh, uh, really useful. I, I was actually... Um, at a conference in Seattle last week, and a student presented a really interesting paper on, you mentioned the relationship between water, on how the availability and pricing of water affects uh, electricity generation. Since most generation capability was designed and constructed in the United States decades or a generation before our current thinking about water shortages. So it wasn't designed with, well, we need to be responsive to availability of water in in the mix. So fascinating how this all uh, ties together. Certainly. So with that as uh, some background, if we could unpack small 
modular nuclear reactor, and I'll treat nuclear reactor as hyphenated one one thing, right. um, and actually go in reverse. Um, can you explain what we mean by a nuclear reactor and sure. how nuclear reacts to give us electricity? Sure. So nuclear reactors are based on physical property of some elements that the Earth has, uranium being one of those that we're pretty familiar with. And uh, the idea is, is fission. And what does fission mean? Fission basically means you, you take an atom and it splits through natural processes into smaller components. When a nucleus of an atom splits, it becomes a different element. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that uranium would decompose into to other things. And uh, there are other types of radioactive elements, things like plutonium and, and so forth. So Radon, you know, it's one that we deal with some, you know, locally in gaseous form, but it is also radioactive. And so these things decay over time. There's only certain types of uranium called isotopes, which means they have a different number of neutrons in, in the nucleus than sort of the normal uranium does. And these extra neutrons cause it to be a bit more unstable, and so it tends to want to decay. Well, when it decays, it kicks out neutrons. And these neutrons hit other material around it, surrounding material. And the energy of that neutron going into these other materials heats up the material. Well, if you have a fluid nearby, like water, you can heat the water. And you can heat the water to an extent that you can form steam. And the steam is used through a heat exchanger to form steam in another water loop, which is then used to run a turbine. And that's how pretty much all power plants work. Mm -hmm. You make steam, you run a turbine. And so the question is, how do you heat the water to make the steam? You either use this nuclear decay, the fission, or you burn a fuel like coal or natural gas. That's typically what it is. But it all works out to be basically a steam cycle, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, 18th century stuff. <laughs> yeah. The, the uh, magic but, of electricity is it's, it's spinning stuff. Yes, um, yeah, so it's spinning spinning a generator, right? So yep. you gotta, you got to run it through a machine to do that. So, so we call this nuclear fission, this right. uh, radioactive decay. And traditionally, we control the rate of fission by basically how tightly in we pack uh, the uh, fissile material, the closer packed it is, the more fission we get, the more heat we get. Right. Um, and the, the scary thing uh, when we have so-called meltdowns is when that fission reaction gets out of control and we lose our ability to separate this stuff quickly enough right. to prevent that, right? Right. So one of the safety features that nuclear reactors have is they'll have, as you said, you have to you know, sort of moderate how these neutrons interact with the neutrons in the in the other nuclear fuel. And so you have these moderator materials, so graphite's a typical moderator. And so these graphite rods slide down in between the fuel rods and can absorb the neutrons and so can control the fission reaction so that these neutrons don't then cause continuing increases in more fission reactions. And so you can control that. And so what you'd like to do is kind of set that up to be sort of a fail-safe mode. So mm-hmm. these control rods are set up where they they have to be lifted out of the fuel system so that the nuclear reaction, fission reactions can take place and self-sustain. And if there's power loss or something where you uh, need to have emergency shutdown, these uh, moderating rods will fall down between the fuel rods and slow down the uh, 
a nuclear reaction. Now, part of this is also the coolant, the water system. And so there's always been concern about, you know, making sure that water can pump through there because if you leave the water stagnant and don't have heat exchange, the water heats up and can form steam and and build up pressure in the vessel and and can cause ruptures and so forth. So water pumping is a big deal in Mm -hmm. in these reactors and trying to uh, make those fail safe. And so some of the new reactor designs actually work on uh, stored water systems that are more or less natural convection and gravity fed and don't have to rely so much on mechanical pumps and so forth so that if there is uh, you know, a large problem, things tend to want to shut down into a nice, safe mode naturally. And that's part of the, the sort of generation four design of these uh, modular reactors is, is to take advantage of that. And that's a much easier thing to do on a smaller scale than a much larger plant. So that's one of the drivers uh, for these uh, small reactor designs. Yeah, so that that actually takes me to my next question, and you've already started to give us some sense of this. Uh, So nuclear reactors, we understand it's based upon this fission reaction, heating up water, turning it into steam, and... This gives us both of the uh, really scary things. We're, we're putting all the scary stuff up right. front. Sure. Uh, the, the idea that the reaction, we might lose control of it. Right. And when that happens, we have, for instance, in uh, the Japan nuclear reactor yeah, failure. Fukushima. Yeah. Uh, Fukushima, there is just a, somewhere some big lump of, uh, of uh, material. Of ba- nasty stuff. Uh, of yeah. nasty stuff that's right. just continuing to uh, uh, decay and give off radioactivity and lots of heat, and we can't get anywhere near it. Right. And then the other really scary thing is the water that is in contact with that material. It be- can become slightly radioactive, and if it's steam, yep. it explodes and can release into the air. Right. So that, that's all the scary stuff, um, or some of the, the scary stuff. And those are kind of hallmarks of the traditional nuclear reactor design. With the modular reactors, we've been doing modular or smaller reactors for some time, is my understanding. Uh, Nuclear uh, submarines and aircraft carriers, for instance, use small nuclear uh, reactors. How are these designs different in these smaller systems? So, yeah, the Navy has a long history of, of safe operation of small reactors, and those are sort of built around conventional fuel systems, you know, uh, conventional uranium fuel rods and, and those sort of things and, and conventional cooling mechanisms. And it's it's sort of one of those things is like, okay, we have a pretty good technology and we understand how to use it, so we're going to keep using it. So it doesn't change very much. So it's 50 years old or, or older technology. And so one of the, the with the new uh, reactor designs is is an attempt to use some different fuel configurations uh, different techniques for cooling for safety purposes and so forth. You know, there are systems that have been looked at as not just, you know, water cooling, but also things like metal cooling, sodium-cooled reactors and some other technologies uh, that are being uh, investigated as to maybe those would, would work better. Uh, the traditional uh, reactors also rely quite a bit on shielding, traditional shielding, and they need these uh, moderating materials to absorb neutrons and so forth. And so, of course, all of that material can become radioactive, and so you have all the material uh, that you have to deal with around surrounding that. Uh, But it tends to be the designs, uh, the cooling systems, the control systems are all pretty old technology. I mean, they're kind of tried and true 
but these new modular reactors have more uh, ability to sense sort of the state of the system and and make decisions and have the computer that helps the operator understand what's going on in the mm-hmm. system. And, and there's been a lot of work over the years in how to convey information to people because that's always a big deal, right, is when as an operator, it's like an aircraft pilot, right? You've got a lot of dials, a lot of indicators, a lot of lights. What's the relevant information and mm-hmm. how do you convey that to the person? Uh, and so that's there are a, lot of, a lot of improvements in those kinds of things as well. What's meant by modular? When I think modular, I, I'll just say I, I think Legos. Yeah, I think things exactly, that snap together. Exactly, exactly. So, so modular just means that we can build a block that is a generating unit uh, uses fissionable materials and has its cooling system designed to go with it. And we can get a block that, say, would generate 200 kilowatts of power. And if we wanted 400 kilowatts of power, we get another block. Mm-hmm. And we put two of them side by side, and now we have 400 kilowatts. If we need 600 kilowatts, and you just keep stacking blocks. And the idea is, because I'm replicating this multiple times, I get really good at building these little blocks. Mm-hmm. And they're similar, so we all, you know, everybody understands how to control the block, right? And so it's not like block A is different than block B. And so I understand if I know how to control block A, I know how to control block B. Whereas the nuclear power plants we have today, they're all one-offs. So mm-hmm. the exact details of the operating system, the control system, the sensors, the pumping system, the coolants, all that stuff's unique to an individual plant. So if you, even though you sort of understand the big picture and you, and you know, when they at a high level work similarly, the details of operating a current nuclear plant are different. So if I go from the Cooper nuclear station here uh, and I go out to South Carolina to one of the nuclear plants, I'm going to have to do some training because I'm going to mm-hmm. have to understand that. Whereas if I had a modular system, and I said, oh, uh, GE or Nucor, uh, New Scale built this thing. And so I understand in, uh, this New Scale 200 megawatt uh, reactor, and I go to a different state, and I have a, another 200 megawatt reactor from the same manufacturer. I'm like, okay, got it. I know exactly how this thing runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is that roughly the size that we're talking about? So uh, yeah, so I kind of the the number that is used is is somewhere around three hundred megawatts and below are are considered small nuclear reactors. These typical nuclear plants, like the Cooper Nuclear Station, is rated uh, around eight hundred and thirty five megawatts, so almost a, a billion watts, almost a gigawatt, uh, and that's kind of typical for nuclear plants. Uh, big power plants, they're in the 600 kilowatt, 700 kilowatt, up to over a gigawatt uh, power production. And so these are roughly a third of that size mm-hmm. or smaller. And I've heard, uh, I was talking to a utility CEO the other day, and I was asking questions about this. And, and he thought that these modular reactors would probably settle in somewhere around a 200 kilowatt size that gets kilowatt or megawatt uh megawatt excuse me yeah 200 megawatt thank you <laughs> yeah also that is, that's a micro reactor <laughs> yeah, yep i usually see a ballpark of about two kilowatts per house uh, as a typical usage so you're, you're talking about a uh, hundred 150,000 homes with yep. one of those yep. units yep so uh two of these reactors would power a lincoln kind of sure 
I yeah. guess residentially, like it yeah, also has uh, yeah. non-residential uses as well. You use the example earlier of these are kind of manufactured more akin to a car assembly line than a bespoke custom construction, custom installation. Physically, how large are they? Are, are they the size of a car? Are they the size of a, a three-mile island? Now, so yeah, so they're much smaller than Three Mile Island. So the New Scale reactor was one of the companies that are about to install one of these small reactors at Idaho National Labs. I believe they were somewhere around nine to ten feet in diameter and about sixty feet tall. Okay. So more or less like a five or six story building. I, mm-hmm. I would call it a, a large grain uh, cylinder. Okay. So we're still talking a, a very large structure or piece of sure. uh, structure but, or piece of equipment. How would you characterize that? Um, I would point? call it, it yeah, uh, I would call it a structure, I, I would think, because, you, you know, all of these still have to have a containment vessel because mm-hmm. that's sort of the last line of defense is the reactor itself puts out some material, whether it's steam or what, whatever, something escapes from the reactor vessel itself, then there's a containment vessel which houses, which is the, the thing you kind of see when you see pictures of nuclear power plants and so forth. It's mm-hmm. those big containment vessels, and, and it's concrete you know, there to sort of contain all the, all the bad things that might escape into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's my understanding that the Nebraska Public Power District has recently gotten federal approval to start experimenting with small modular nuclear reactor. Do you have any experience with or involvement with the MPPD efforts? So not, not in the nuclear realm. So we, we interact with the Nebraska Public Power District. They support research through the Energy Center. So we have a lot of projects that are Many, some basic science, some very applied kinds of projects, some that uh, really span, you know, the energy umbrella uh, all the way from uh, uh, new battery technologies to agricultural practices and soil health of, Mm -hmm. and can we sequester carbon various places and all all kinds of questions about this as well. Sort of the things you would normally think of, of uh, wind energy and solar energy and uh, transmission line systems and, and those kind of things. But uh, on the nuclear side, we haven't done that much with the company. And uh, they are working on a study uh, to look at siting. Where where would potential sites be for these small reactors? Uh, and I think they're relying heavily on the U.S. Department of Energy to give them guidance on what technology might or might not come to the fore uh, that would be best utilized. And, and so right now they're just looking at sites because they're trying to, you know, they have to have water. All these things require water. So mm-hmm. where's appropriate place for water? Uh, you need to be close to a transmission system uh, mm-hmm. because you, once you generate the power, you got to send it out on the transmission lines. And so where does it make sense in the state to do such things? So that's, that's what this initial study is about is to look at that. And what I understand is they were had kind of a, a running list of 15 sites that were being considered, and they're going to try to whittle that down to four sites, be a little more serious about, and look at what are the permitting issues, what are the environmental issues, which includes, of course, uh, wildlife. You know, you always, when you site these things, just like a wind farm, 
uh, you have to worry about environmental issues and the impact on wildlife. And, and so you have to you know, kind of do your homework on that. I can imagine the siting issues for these systems being quite a bit different than for other generation sources. Um, obviously, a, a dam is going to need to be where there's a, a, a sure. river and uh, right. a proximity to fuel sources or a, a pipeline for natural gas or coal yep. um, or a, a good wind corridor for wind and the like. But with small modular nuclear, there is some water need um, and access to uh, distribution, uh, grid access. But I expect, and I could correct me if I'm wrong, it, it sounds like these could likely be placed more flexibly than a lot of other generation systems. Uh, so I guess, yes. first, is that right? right? And how does that affect how we think about designing a grid? Yeah. So, you know, because the footprint is smaller, uh, so just by its nature, there are more potentially more pl- places are, are available for siting. So then you can, you know, there are other aspects, again, because they're smaller, less water usage is required. And so that opens up, you know, you don't need necessarily the large water flow for as you would for a big plant. So again, that makes more sites open. And so then you start looking at what are the system costs, right? You say, well, if we site in location A, we have this cost with the transmission system. So you have this, the installation, the operation and maintenance. Does that make sense? You have to have also transportation infrastructure to operate the plant, right? So you have to be able to service the plant, make sure that fuel in and out and all those sort of things. And so just sort of the normal operation of the plant. So the, the transportation infrastructure is also important. The transmission line infrastructure, and then, you know, how are we doing with the environmental? And so all those things. So you're trying to optimize the system. The other thing that's important to think about is uh, utility companies build power plants and they're looking out 40 and 50 years into the future. And it is mm-hmm. it is hard to predict what the future 50 years out is going to be. But that's the kind of thinking that, that's done because a power plant is not a five- or ten-year mm-hmm. activity. You, right. know, you don't put one of these in and then say 10 years, we're going to be done with it. This is a 50-year commitment kind of mm-hmm. thinking. And so what is the lifetime cost? You know, What's going to happen 30, 40 years down the road? Are we going to have the availability of the resources. And so they do their best to plan for that and make their best guesses. And that's also the reason that it's hard to decommission existing power plants. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. a huge capital investment and you don't want to leave that stranded, right? That asset stranded by walking away from it. And so it's one of those things that takes time. And so it takes time to make a decision, hence all the siting discussion and taking a, a fairly extended time to think about siting issues and permitting. And then to make actually bring something into fruition, get it online, and then operate, and then decommissioning because that's also part of the process, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to think about okay, if we decommission this, you know, what's the timeline? What's the mm-hmm. co- cost, projected cost out into the future of when we decommission this thing? Uh, you you mentioned something that piqued my ears from both an operational and also a safety perspective, fuel for the plants. I've heard some discussion that there are some small reactor designs that are designed to be non-serviceable. You 
leave the fuel in and they burn themselves out. You don't need to worry right. about refueling them. And we, we should say when we're talking about fuel, we spoke before about you put the uranium in and it goes through this radioactive decay process. Well, right. it turns into something through that process and it turns into a slightly less radioactive, but still radioactive material. Right. Um, and when it's no longer radioactive enough for the right formulation of radioactivity, I'll be very general <laughs> with, yeah. with uh, yeah. that yeah. phrasing, uh, you, you take it out and you put new fuel in and you need to store, dispose of, which really means store, uh, the nuclear waste. What does the fueling and the waste side so like? so here's a here's an interesting uh, I think I think you brought up an interesting aspect of this. So there is some concern that these uh, small reactors could produce up to 30% more nuclear, uh, waste material than the the large scale conventional reactors. So part of that it varies greatly depending on the reactor design. So there's sort of two broad types. There's what they call these thermal reactors, and then these fast reactors or fast neutron reactors. And it's really about how the the fuel configurations designed and the energy of uh, the neutrons that come out from these fission reactions. And so the, the high-energy neutrons are the fast ones, and they don't have moderating material in the system. And so kind of the, the outside of the nuclear reactor vessel absorbs these neutrons, and it, it can become radioactive. And so dealing with those materials, uh, there's advantages depending on how you design them because you could actually put uranium, you could put other nuclear f potential fuel on the outside to capture these fast neutrons and actually generate more fissionable material that can be pulled out and used as fuel for a different reactor. And then there's the sort of the, the normal ones we think about, the thermal plants, which are the, you know, you have a moderator and, and uh, water or something that absorbs these neutrons and gets hot, uh, and you use that heat transfer to, to generate steam. Uh, and those, those are the thermal reactors. And so because the, these modular reactors are smaller, uh, so you have sort of volumetrically just the, the external parts of the, of the reactor vessel, there's more material that can become radioactive. And as you said, there are some reactors that just like it's sort of a one-and-done thing, right? Put the fuel in, burn it up, and then it's like, okay, now we've got this Lego block mm -hmm. that's radioactive and now we got to store it somewhere right mm -hmm. so we got to do something with it so we got to pick it up haul it off somewhere s store it on site so i think that's also one of the issues is it's not clear yet what this modular technology uh you know which uh direction this is going to land which then affects how are you going to site these things how are you going to deal with the spent nuclear fuel and so forth I think one of the issues that is a serious policy issue for the U.S. is is on fuel reprocessing. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't reprocess fuel. Other countries do reprocess fuel. Japan and France, for instance, reprocess fuel. And what do you mean by reprocess? And so you take spent fuel rods out of nuclear reactors, whether it's the modular reactor uh, fuel uh, that you're going to reprocess or these larger plants that's, that still exist, and you pull out the fissionable material that's still there because so what you do is you have to you have to reconcentrate it so that it'll give you the uh, sustainable fission reaction that you need and so 
you take a, a used fuel rod and about 96% of it is like uranium 238, I think mm-hmm. is the, is the isotope that's, yep. that's not fissionable. And you have to concentrate down to the U-235. There's also typically plutonium in there, which is one of the reasons that the U.S. was not serious about fuel reprocessing because they were worried about plutonium getting into the wrong hands and, and proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so if you could pull those fissionable materials out, reconcentrate them, create new fuel rods, you could get estimates, I think, are like around 30 to 40 percent uh, more energy from you know what was the original fuel rod, uh, you could gain another third mm-hmm. on energy production by doing the reprocessing. The other thing you do is reduce the amount of material that you have to store because eventually you do have to s- store something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and storage then becomes a problem from uh, a really scary kind of problem of thousands of years to down to maybe a hundred years or so, which is not something to, to scoff at in terms of technology to do that, but it's a much more manageable problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, particularly if the volume of fuel uh, the, of things that you have to store is, is reduced. So I think that's one of the, you know, you say, well, these modular reactors can operate safer, they'll be more efficient, et cetera. But then if they actually are going to produce more uh, nuclear waste material, have you really gained anything? So I think that's still an open question. Building on that, what do you think the path to adoption, technologically speaking, is for this technology? Are, are we there yet with where the current state is? Or what obstacles are there to be overcome before this is really a viable technology for us to be deploying at scale? Yeah. So I, you know, there are, uh, in the U.S., there are plans for this company called uh, New Scale going to uh, install, I believe they're rated uh, 77 megawatts. I think they're, so they're, they're pretty small, but they're, they're basically field tests of these reactor technologies. So I think we need that experience to kind of see, okay, are these really going to function as advertised and operate as advertised and is, uh, and so forth? So we need some data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's going to take some more time. So I think we're, you know, minimally five to ten years out before mm-hmm. we can start to hone in on a technology that seems to be the right one to go because there, there are multiple technology paths and you don't want to cut them off too soon, but at some point – you have to make a decision. So I think some field tests will help clarify that. So, but So I think another decade at least before a decision's made on a technology and a design that then is some company willing to produce because do they see a market for this? Mm-hmm. And that's where U.S. policy and uh, Department of Energy is going to uh, have to be a leader and, and say, okay, here here's where we think we're headed with the design. Here are the risks. Here are the benefits and then move forward in the public policy area to make that happen. Because as you know, one of the big bugaboos with nuclear energy is permitting and Mm -hmm. and so forth. And so I think in the legal profession in particular, there has to be some support garnered uh, to help with permitting or the industry is going to keep sort of in its current stalled mode, uh, which I, the public has to decide if they want a reliable electric grid with the assumption that we don't have a breakthrough in storage technology, we're going to have limited availability and ability to use renewable sources. So again, we're back to the natural gas, coal, nuclear. So you have to mm-hmm. decide what are we willing to live with. And, and so I think it's, 
it's squarely going to be a public policy decision over the next decade as well. I, yeah. I think that's that to me, that's actually more key, a, a larger issue than the technology issues. And there's so many questions there yeah. from just how are we going to design these systems? You can imagine, you mentioned new scale, 75 megawatts. Do we want to live in? Is the trajectory for that sort of system? Small towns, every, that's right. a, a town of 25,000 people with a bit of uh, light industry, that reactor could power that town perfectly. And we want every town to have its own (laughs) nuclear reactor. Well, there would be a lot more uh, reliability in the grid if it were that distributed. But when you have large plants, you have fewer incidents that happen. But when they do happen, they're much larger. Correct. So uh, right. there, there's a whole right. lot of public right. policy there. and uh, Well, and the other part that goes with, you know, you were talking about the sort of this uh, community scale uh, nuclear plants um, is security. Mm-hmm. How do you keep these things secure? And, and, and if you have every little town has its own nuclear reactor, how can you guarantee that all of those are adequately secured from bad actors, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and so that's a question, I think, as well. So then you say, well, okay, so to deal with the security, we're going to concentrate these small reactors in a geographic area. Well, then are we really a small reactor? Or are we just, a bunch, you know, collectively now we're just one large reactor again. We're a big power plant again. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's these trade-offs. Uh, and I'll uh, give you an opportunity to put in a plug for education. Uh, one of the sure. things that we need for uh, nuclear technology generally uh, is folks who are nuclear engineers, who understand yes. how uh, what the science is yes. and how to operate these things. Do we have enough of those? We do not. There is definitely a shortage. As you can imagine, as the, the power systems engineers, uh, as that area kind of declined uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, in terms of need for, for workforce, and then a, sort of along with that was the nuclear industry, and then, of course, all the environmental and permitting problems that came up and, and so forth. And so the nuclear industry sort of ground to a halt, and, and new plant installations stopped. And so the demand for nuclear engineering kind of stalled. Well, as in many cases, those of us like me that are getting older, getting closer to retirement, uh, you've got this big change in workforce, and all of a sudden we have a huge shortage. So the power industry is hiring like crazy. Uh, there's a shortage of nuclear engineers. And so Department of Energy, Department of Defense, and the federal government are supporting education programs to train nuclear engineers. Uh, and you see the growth and enrollment of students in nuclear chemistry, nuclear physics, nuclear engineering programs around the country. So one thing that uh, I'll say not quite puzzles me, but I want to dive in a little bit more on uh, that you've mentioned, placing nuclear alongside natural gas and coal as energy sources as opposed to intermittent renewables. Um, So solar and wind, they die down when wind and sun die down. But nuclear is tangibly different from natural gas and coal. If I'm recalling correctly, nuclear is generally best for baseload. It's not good for spinning up uh, to uh, demand surges. And and that's, I would say, it it is the uh, worst at trying to ramp up and ramp down very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coal plants are also close to that in terms of you want to turn the plant on, have it run at maximum efficiency, and leave it alone. And so that base load, you're exactly right, is is what you need for a nuclear plant. 
the natural gas plants are a little bit easier to spin up and down and so to sort of flow with the low demand, uh, as you might guess, you know, typical demand in the summer. Everybody goes to work. Everybody comes home in the afternoon. All the air conditioners kick on. All the, you know, the washer and dryers and the dishwashers, everything kicks on, right? So the demand goes up mm-hmm. pretty high. And so how do you ramp up for that? problem with wind and solar, of course, is it's whatever it is for that day. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You get you get what you get. Yep. <laughs> and, or, or when everyone goes home from work, that's when wind is usually dying down and the yes. sun is going away. <laughs> right. so we, but, you know, and then you have these seasonal things like the, the large electrical load is in the summer, you know, especially in this part of the world, it's air conditioning and irrigation are mm-hmm. the big electrical loads. And that's when the wind is the worst. Summer is the season with the worst wind and so the wind energy production during the summer is mm-hmm. at its lowest. Solar's good, but we don't have nearly as much solar around as, as wind in terms of renewable sources. And so so the, the demand and the generating source uh, in terms of renewables don't quite match up very well. So, again, you need that base generation. Mm-hmm. And so nuclear's perfect for that. Yeah, it's you, you want to sort of get the nuclear plant operating in its peak efficiency, and then you just want to let it run. Mm. You don't want to modulate it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and maybe uh, we'll get some new energy storage technologies. That, down that would some. be a huge game changer. That that would really, you know, you could, so if you could imagine a really efficient, economical energy storage system, uh, large-scale energy that you could easily convert to some form of energy storage back to electrical or store the electrical in some manner, then you could think about a huge increase in renewable energy and you could really think about getting rid of fossil fuel plants and even nuclear plants maybe mm-hmm. if you could do that. So, yeah, that that would be a huge change. So we touched on the technological path to uh, adoption you mentioned the policy side. The policy side has two parts. It has the actual federal policy and the laws and regulations, but also has public support and adoption. And I grew up in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles generation, uh-huh. which is to say the when, when I was a kid, most people, most media was, we are scared of nuclear waste because it turns you into a turtle and makes you a, a ninja or something. <laughs> um, but uh, the younger, more current generations I think are are different, much more environmentally concerned, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly Chernobyl and Three Mile Island are much further removed from their collective experience. So it feels to me like nuclear is receiving a warmer welcome today than 30, 40 years ago it might have. Are you optimistic that we might actually, as a society, be willing to embrace nuclear as a, a one of our primary energy solutions in the mix? I, I I am. Um, I I think it's you know if you if you look on balance now whether whether the small modular reactor pans out or not or we go back to large power plant designs, I think nuclear is is a great option because particularly if you couple that with fuel reprocessing so that you get what they call a, a closed fuel cycle uh, for these things and and so that there's a, a manageable amount of waste material at the end that you have to deal with. I think if we do the right things in the technology and the policy, I think nuclear has has a really good future. Uh, you know, we could really think of a day where we could really get rid of all the coal plants, absolutely, and, and have a few natural gas plants around to help moderate as we need and, and have the renewable 
maximized as best we can. And we still have a ways to go in renewable area as well. I mean, there's still room to grow some of the renewables. Uh, particularly, I think you're going to see a, a shift in time as uh, solar starts to replace wind energy in the next 20 years, 30 years. And so, I, you know, I can sort of see a future of nuclear uh, solar PV systems and and maybe natural gas to, to a limited extent. And then there might be some other viable forms, local forms. You know, particularly if you're on the coast, there's some other options that may may work out on a small scale mm-hmm. for those communities as well. So, so yeah, I think, I think there's definitely a future for nuclear. And I think we ought to give it serious consideration. And that's why I think the public policy discussion and local discussions are important. And we need to get information to people about it and, and, and be upfront about here are the risk and here are the benefits and, and try to move forward with it. Well, hopefully uh, this conversation is part of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any uh, final thoughts you want to leave us with? Well, yeah, I, I w- I'll say one thing. I, I will say that uh, I have been extremely impressed with the state and uh, with the Nebraska uh, and the way that uh, they have structured the utility uh, businesses in the state with they're all public utilities. They're beholden to the public. They're responsive to the public. And I have found the corporate leadership in all of those companies. And, and really, there are three big companies uh, generating transmission companies. There's Lincoln Electric Systems, Omaha Public Power District, and Nebraska Public Power District. They are very responsive. They're very thoughtful. And they really want the best for the citizens of the state. And they're trying to have both a reliable system, a safe system, and a very economical system. Because they know, we, as we all know, energy prices affect everything. And so it's really important to keep energy prices low. We have, currently have fairly low energy prices. Uh, and so they're committed to that, and they want the economic benefits to the state. So I, I would leave with that comment that the power companies are collectively our allies. They work for us. They work for the citizens. And they take that seriously. And with that, Jerry Hudgens, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at unl underscore ngtc.